Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Before we begin our study this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture teaches us that we need to be in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, in order to uh, progress in the spiritual life under the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we are advancing by means of our own effort, our own flesh, or the sin nature, according to Galatians 5, 16 and following. And therefore, whatever we do has no eternal value. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 and to make sure that you are in fellowship. So uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together today to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to focus on the eternal truths that you have revealed to us, to understand who and what we are in Jesus Christ, our responsibilities, obligations, and and all that you have provided for us that we may have a significant ministry in and to the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for this nation in which we live. We continue to pray for our president, for political and military leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would uh, enable our intelligence forces to uncover the proper information in order to forestall any attacks against this nation, that you would continue to give us uh, victory in Iraq, Afghanistan, to continue to seek out and destroy the evildoers, those who have committed themselves to the destruction of the West. Father, we pray that you would continue to give our our leaders strength. We pray for those from this congregation who are still serving overseas. We pray for them and their families that you would strengthen them and that you would give them opportunities to witness and to be a testimony to the stability that doctrine provides for the believer. Father, as we are challenged by your word today, we pray that we would be responsive to it that this would not be a simple academic exercise, but that we may be stimulated to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this time yesterday, I was on a ranch in the hill country in central Texas. And I was down there for a very special occasion because a dear friend of mine, celebrating his 90th birthday. And the environment in which we were uh, operating was one that, as I've reflected on it uh, during the last couple of days, was one that's very difficult to communicate to many people because so few people have this kind of frame of reference in their life. But this man exemplifies for me more of what a spiritual, mature believer is all about than anybody else I've ever met in my life. 
I didn't get to know him until he was almost 50 years old. And by that time, he had already had a lifetime of tremendous ministry. And as I reflected on the fact that, that most of the people who were there to celebrate his, his uh, 90th birthday, although there were many people there who were uh, in their 70s or even 80s and had been products of his ministry, there were so many there that were under the age of 60. And I thought, what a fantastic and productive ministry he's had after the age of 50. That means a lot to me since I'm now 51. So, And I also was reminded that Lewis Perry Schaefer founded Dallas Seminary when he was, I think he was 51 years of age when he founded Dallas Seminary. So we live in a world that glorifies the youth, but it seems that in the spiritual life it is those that reach maturity that seem to have a real impact on uh, on others. But this man is noted because he founded a Christian camp that was down in Central Texas. He was uh, before he did that. The way he got started was with a group called Young Life. Now I don't know if they had Young Life up here, but Young Life was a ministry that was started by three or four Dallas Seminary students back in the late 30s to develop a campus ministry for uh, teenagers in high schools and junior high, and they developed various uh, afternoon Bible study clubs and. Gordon Whitelock was one of the very first Young Life leaders, and I think one of the first ones, if not the first one in Houston, and one of the first uh, teenagers to go to his Young Life club was my mother, which is where she was led to the Lord. And then as a result of his work with uh, teens during that time, and uh, he was pastoring a small country church south of Houston at that time, and uh, he was developed a Boy Scout group and would take the kids out camping, he discovered what a fantastic opportunity it was to, to teach the gospel and teach the word to kids in a camping setting where they got away from all the distractions of life. And, of course, today the distractions of life for kids is much greater than it was in 1938. So over the last 50 or 60 years, that camp ministry grew to where it has produced hundreds, if not well over a 1,000 men and women who are serving the Lord in some sort of full-time professional ministry. And what was encouraging, there were about 250 people who had driven out there to celebrate his birthday yesterday, and many people that I had hoped to see weren't there because they were serving on the mission field or they were a pastor somewhere and they didn't take off like I did to fly down there and fly home and get home at 1, 1 o'clock or one thirty in the morning. But that man was always an example to me of grace orientation, and I would not be in the ministry today if it were not for him because of the opportunities he gave me as a, as a high school kid and as a, as a college student, and I really cut my teeth teaching the Word in ministry at that camp. And so it was a great opportunity just to reflect on the importance of ministry and those kinds of ministries and how rare it is to find believers who really take the word that seriously and press on to spiritual maturity and impact uh, that many lives. I was encouraged as I was talking to folks there. I ran into parents of a number of my peers that I had grown up with and counseled with down at uh, Camp Penile. And I was amazed how many were out on the mission field. I saw one couple who 
I knew very well and grew up with all their kids. And I asked about their oldest son, and they said, well, he is in an area. We can't tell you where he is. He's with a Bible-translating missionary group. I knew he'd been in Papua New Guinea or someplace like that for, for a while. And he is now working among Muslim people in, uh, in a very difficult area and having a, incredible successes of translating the, the uh, New Testament into the native language, and they're having an incredible response from many of the indigenous people who are hearing the gospel. And, of course, if word got out as to where they are and what they were doing, it would create an incredible furor. So people like that are out there. We don't know about what they're doing, but there are many, many missionaries from this country who are probably working in very sensitive areas in the Middle East, and we need to pray for them. And then I talked to another uh, man who I've known most of my life. I grew up with his three daughters, and the youngest daughter is married to a man, and they're missionaries in Amman, Jordan. So these are the kinds of people that we need to continuously pray for, even though we don't know that they're out there, and we may not know them by name, they are out there. And I know these two individuals and several others that that um, we talked about while I was there, who are all over the world. They're they're ministering, they're teaching the word, and it was just such a uh, refreshing thing to see what an impact that ministry has had in challenging people to dedicate their life to service to the Lord and not in the kind of silly, superficial way that you often have in revival meetings, but that these were people who, because of the impact of this one individual who started this camp and because of his impact personally in the lives of so many and his own personal spiritual maturity and just the influence of that one life, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are growing and learning the word. And it just is an encouragement to realize how important each of us is in the body of Christ. And that's our subject as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. And it shows what we learn in 1 Corinthians 12 is that every believer has a vital and important and significant role to play in the body of Christ. There is no believer who can sit on the sidelines if they are at all advancing in the spiritual life. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start at verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, as we look at that verse, the first thing we have to do is to do some analysis in the original language because it's not... The thrust of the verse in the original does not come through in the translation. So let's back off a little bit and take a few moments to just analyze it in the original. That first noun that we run into in verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit, is the Greek word phanerosis. And phanerosis has the idea of a manifestation or a disclosure. This is a synonym in the Greek for apocalypsis, which is the normal word used for revelation, which means to uncover or disclose, or epiphania, which has to do with a physical appearance 
of God, which is epiphania is the word from which we get our word epiphany. But unlike these other words, this word is never used of a physical disclosure or appearance of the person of God, but instead it emphasizes a manifestation or a display related to the unseen or inner work of God the Holy Spirit at salvation. And what this refers to is the doctrine that we will hit at the end of this passage in verse, verses 12 and 13, which focus on the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the manifestation here is the outworking of the spiritual giftedness of each believer. And as they grow to maturity, this work of the Holy Spirit in your life becomes a display of God's character, and specifically of God the Holy Spirit. So we talk about a demonstration or a disclosure, but the disclosure of the Spirit. And here we have a genitive phrase, which is a genitive of source, that the source of this manifestation is God the Holy Spirit. But the disclosure uh, from the source of God the Holy Spirit is given. And here we have the verb uh, dido, didotai, which is the present passive indicative form of the verb didomi, which means to give or to grant or to dispense. Whenever you see the word give in the English, you ought to always think about grace, that this is God's gracious gift to each one of us. This is not dependent upon who and what we are. It is a passive form of the verb. That means the subject receives the action of the verb and does not perform the action of the verb. Spiritual gifts are given at the uh, sovereign will, based on the sovereign will of God, the Holy Spirit. They are not based on who or what we are. It is we simply receive it as a special gift that comes at the instant of salvation. So we have the disclosure of from the source of God, the Holy Spirit, is graciously given to each one, to each uh, believer here. And that's uh, a little, for a little clarification, it's given to each one, that is each believer, for the profit of all. Now, that last phrase has to be clarified. The Greek word pros, the preposition pros, is what's translated for. It's for as a funny word in the English. You can do something for someone in the sense of for their benefit. You can do something for someone in the sense of substitution. You can do something, you can use the preposition for to explain a reason or a rationale. It's a multi-purpose word that is somewhat ambiguous. So we have to go into the Greek, and the Greek is a preposition pros, which in this sense is the conclusion of a clause indicates purpose. So it's given to each believer for a purpose. But the meaning of this last phrase goes beyond the sum of the, the parts. It's not simply uh, pros plus the uh, accusative of sumpheros. It is uh, an actual idiom which has to do with that which is useful, beneficial, or of service. So what we come to in terms of an understanding of this verse in the original is that this is the demonstration, but we should translate it this way, but the demonstration from the Spirit is graciously given to each believer 
in order to serve the whole body. This demonstration is from the source of the Holy Spirit and is graciously given to each believer in order to serve the whole body. So we learn that the purpose isn't for the profit of the body, and that's in, in, in that sense, I think that's not a very clear term. It's not for the benefit of the body, but it is in order to serve the whole body. This word, this last phrase, symphiros, has a rich heritage that goes back to classical Greek, and the idiom maintained itself through the Koine period and has the idea of producing that which is useful, beneficial, or of service. So with that in mind, we need to look at the doctrine of spiritual service. The doctrine of spiritual service. This is something that is poorly understood, but this is something that we need to clarify, and it should be a challenge for every one of us. We had an announcement this morning that we're continuing to do a lot of work on this old building, and and Ken still needs some help, and that's a function of spiritual service. You may not be gifted in the arena of being of spiritual service, but that doesn't mean you're excluded from. Uh, some sort of responsibility or obligation in that area any more than if you're not gifted with the spiritual gift of giving or evangelism or any of the other spiritual gifts that that excludes you from responsibility or obligation in that area. If we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of serving the entire body of Christ. And when believers don't get involved in using their spiritual gift, number one, or do not get involved in spiritual or in some sort of Christian service, number two, then the whole body suffers. And that's one of the reasons that we get into a lot of problems. We also get into problems because people don't understand spiritual service and they equate it with some sort of human good system or good work system that impresses God and that is a means of spirituality. So there's a lot of confusion. You have two ends of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have people who are trying to use it in the wrong way and make it some means of spirituality or uh, make them a special case for being a believer. On the other end, you have people who call themselves grace-oriented, and they just sit back and don't do anything and end up expecting somebody else to do it all. Both both extremes are wrong. So let's review it, go over the doctrine point by point. First point, every church-age believer is in full-time Christian service at the instant of regeneration. Every church-age believer is in full-time Christian service at the instant of regeneration. At the point that you are saved, you're given a spiritual gift or more than one spiritual gift. And you're also adopted into the royal family of God, which gives you certain responsibilities in terms of being a royal priest and in terms of being a royal ambassador. So service, Christian service, is related to all three of those. It's related to your your spiritual gift. It's related to being a member of the royal family of God and being a royal priest and being a royal ambassador. So every church-age believer is in full-time Christian service at the instant of regeneration. The phrase full-time Christian service does not restrict itself to the narrow view of full-time professional Christian work. We want to make that distinction between full-time Christian service and full-time professional Christian work. There's a difference. 
every believer from the instant of salvation enters into full-time Christian service. That doesn't mean that that is your vocation, but that is your avocation. That is to be what you are involved in as you grow and mature as a believer. Now, there are those, because of the spiritual gifts that they're given, are going to end up in some sort of full-time professional Christian work. This can be anything from a secretary to a pastor teacher, from an evangelist or missionary to someone who is involved working for a church or a Christian organization, may be involved in, in handling computers for that organization, may be involved in being a janitor for that organization, could involve just about anything. But as Christian organizations and churches grow, they need to hire personnel who take care of all kinds of responsibilities. So don't think of a full-time professional Christian worker as simply a pastor or a missionary. If many of you serve time in the military and you know that for every man who's on the front lines in the military, there's a hundred who are providing service and support operations behind the lines. And that same thing is true for, for missionaries. I think of over the years I've always tried personally to support some of the people who were in the administrative positions because what we tend to do as churches and as individuals is we want to support that guy who's out front, the missionary, the evangelist, the pastor, and yet Many of these people need a staff. They need secretaries. They need uh, people who work on their computers. They need all kinds of administrative backup. And when organizations get, such as uh, you know, all kinds of organizations get very large, they have to hire personnel. And if they're faith missions, and we'll continue our study on missions and understand that concept in, in uh, the second hour, but in faith-based missions, every employee has to raise their own salary just as the missionary does. And so often what we do is we want to put our money on the guy that's out there uh, saving souls and teaching the word, and we forget that he really needs a support staff as well. So we need to have a greater vision for what full-time professional Christian service involves, and it goes beyond the man on the front lines. But the first point is simple, simply that every church-age believer is in full-time Christian service from the instant of salvation. The second point, we begin to clarify this, that it is not what you do in terms of activity around a local church that is important. See, this is where we get into the distortion on the teaching of, the, of spiritual service. The spiritual service, as it's taught in many places emphasizes doing something as soon as you get into a local church let's get you involved in doing something that was a i've heard that from so many different people over the years as soon as you get a new member get them involved in doing something in the church and that gets them committed to the church but this is based on an assumption that doing something at a local church is somehow related to spiritual growth in spirituality, and it's not. That's why I make this point. It's not what you do in terms of activity, physical activity around a local church that's important, but your status as a Christian 
filled with the Spirit, and that determines the legitimacy of your Christian service. You have all kinds of people who are involved in teaching Sunday school, uh, cleaning up around a church, janitorial work, whatever it may be, and it's nothing more than wood, hay, and straw because it's, it's service that is not done under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it's not legitimate Christian service. Real Christian, for it to be Christian service, that it has to be done under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And see, this is a thing that many people don't understand, is you can do the same activity one day, and it's Christian service, and you can do the same activity the next day, and you're out of fellowship, and you're controlled by the sin nature, and it's just wood, hay, and straw, and it's nothing. But in most churches, because they don't understand the distinction between absolute spirituality and absolute carnality, because they don't understand the means of spiritual growth, they emphasize spiritual service as some sort of of way to grow to spiritual adulthood. They get everything reversed. They put the cart before the horse. So we come to point number three. While Christian service is very important in the outworking of the plan of God, it is not the means of executing the plan. It's part of the plan, but it's not the means of executing the plan. Christian service is very important. Don't limit it. Don't Play it down. Christian service is the outworking. It's the byproduct, though, of spiritual growth. It is not the means of spiritual growth, but it is very important. And this is the thrust of the spiritual gift passages in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. The Christian service is vital to the health of the overall body of Christ. So point number three, once again, while Christian service is very important in the outworking of the plan of God, it is not the means of executing that plan. Fourth point, religion substitutes Christian service for spirituality and momentum in the plan of God. That's what religion does. You go to so many churches, they just want you to get involved in some kind of uh activity around the local church, and the more active you are, the more spiritual you are. And this completely distorts the concept and misses the point of full-time Christian service. You can be in full-time Christian service, and if your spiritual gift uh, relates to a category of service where perhaps you're strong in prayer and you're praying a lot for a local church, then that's your function in the part of your function, the body of Christ, and it's an unseen Christian service. So you're in full-time Christian service, whether you, whether you like it or not, whether you're good at it or not. So the issue is to grow to spiritual maturity to be useful. See, if you stay a spiritual baby, if you stay a spiritual adolescent, your Christian service will be ineffective because you're not a mature believer. So the issue is to grow to maturity so that you can take your place in terms of usefulness and effectiveness in the body of Christ. But you have to keep it in perspective. It's not a means of spiritual growth. It is a consequence of spiritual growth. The more you grow as a believer, the more effective you will be in your spiritual gift. Then point number five, Christian service is never a means, but it's always a result of spiritual progress and growth. It's not a means, but it's a result. Don't get that confused. 
the more you grow, the more you will discover where your spiritual gift lies, and the more you will be sensitive to the importance of service in the local church. And that's an outgrowth of grace orientation because service is not based on, on, on getting anything but on giving, and giving always emphasizes grace. And it's not emphasizing who and what we are. It's not doing something in order to be seen or to gain approbation from other believers. It is in order to do that which is right and that which is beneficial to the body of Christ for the purpose of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number six, Christian service may function through a spiritual gift such as witnessing, uh, prayer, giving, or administration. Christian service may function through a spiritual gift such as witnessing, prayer, giving, or administration. And we'll study all of the different spiritual gifts as we go through the passage. Seventh, I want you to notice the sequence of the prepositional phrases in Ephesians 4.12. That we are, these, the gifts mentioned there, which are the gift of apostle, prophet, evangelist and pastor, teacher, and, of course, apostle and prophet are temporary gifts. But those gifts are given for the purpose of equipping the saints. That is to give you the spiritual skills and growth necessary to be able to do the work. That is the production of service in the body of Christ. This is why one of the reasons why you have Bible class is to equip the believers. All believers are saints. Right now they're having a... A big issue in the Roman Catholic Church. I think this morning they're going to uh, make Mother Teresa a saint. Anybody who reads anything that Mother Teresa stood for realizes she was a first-class heretic, probably not a believer, uh, up to her neck in New Age thinking and relativism. She thought all Hindus would go to heaven. And so they're going to go through the farce of making her a saint this morning. They completely distort and misunderstand the biblical principle that every believer at the instant of salvation is positionally sanctified. And that word sanctification and saint come from the same root in the Greek. And the root noun is hagios or hagiosmos for sanctification. And so every believer is a saint at the instant of salvation. It's not something that is pronounced or Put upon somebody by the by the church because of their uh, dedication or Christian service. That's just a classic example of uh, of religion at its very worst. So we have to go back to the scripture, and scripture teaches that the gift of pastor teacher is given for the purpose of equipping the, equipping the saints for the work or production of service in the body of Christ. That is part of my job description. And that is what, where the scriptures uh, dictate the role of the pastor teachers to equip the saints. And as we'll see, there are all kinds of different positions on the team. And it's amazing. I, I, now we don't have this problem here. I think, you know, when, when Ron was here, he did a great job training the congregation. But in so many congregations, the congregation thinks the pastor ought to be the one that's down at the hospital every time somebody gets a hangnail. And they think the pastor is the one who ought to be out doing all these different areas of Christian service. And he's act, he's the hired professional, and we're going to get a hired gun, and he's going to do everything, and we're just going to sit back and and uh, let him do everything. 
and they expect the pastor to do all kinds of things that distract him from teaching. And I run into pastors all the time, and they have about five to ten hours a week to do any kind of study because the rest of the time they're managing the church, they're administrating the church, they're going to this meeting or that meeting. They're, every time there's somebody in the hospital, they're expected to be there. They're, I, I talked to one pastor one time. He is rather large church. He averages two or three funerals a month plus he's down at the hospital at least two days a week and he said if if i'm not down there and he's got a staff of associate ministers but he said if i'm not down there then they scream because what they the person they want to see when they're going through trouble is their pastor and this is a religious understanding of the church it's a religious understanding of the role of the pastor it's not biblical You see, as we'll study the body of Christ, there are people in the body of Christ who are given the gift of administration. They're the ones who are doing the, should be doing the administering. There are people in the body of Christ who have the gift of mercy and compassion. And if you've ever been around somebody who has the gift of mercy and compassion, then when you're in the hospital or you're going through difficult times, the person you want to see isn't the pastor. Now, I've known a few pastors who had the gift of mercy or compassion, and it's incredible. But most of the guys I know that are pastors, well, they're, they're a little prickly. I had one pastor that... uh that I, I was, uh, one, one person commented to me, he said, he's getting close to hymns like snuggling up with a porcupine. And that's true for a lot of pastors because the gift of pastor-teacher is a gift that demands somebody who's going to be a little more isolated from people because he's going to be spending time studying. Now, you'll find that there are various pastors, there are all kinds of different personalities, but what happens in so many churches is they want to restrict the, the gift of pastor-teacher to the guy who has all these gifts and who's doing everything. And if you want the pastor to do what God wants him to do, then you want to release him from everything else so that he can study and teach. And the point that I keep driving home, and when I was out in California two weeks ago at the at the um, WHW conference, I taught on spiritual gifts, and the point I drove home is that at the judgment seat of Christ, the only thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be evaluating the pastor on is, did you feed my sheep? The congregation is going to say, yeah, but did he go to the hospital? Did he do the funerals? Did he go out and do visitation? But see, the Lord doesn't care about that for the pastor. The Lord's going to say, did you feed my sheep? And so most congregations in this country are trying to destroy their uh, pastor's uh, evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ by insisting that he do all kinds of things that aren't in his job description. So the job description of the pastor-teacher is to equip the saints. Also the job description of the evangelist. We think the gift of evangelism is for witnessing. But if you look carefully at the text, as we will when we get there in first in Ephesians four, eleven and twelve, that the gift of evangelist is also for the purpose of equipping the saints for the production of service, so that you who do not have the gift of evangelism can become more effective in your witness. And I have a good friend who's been up here to visit before, and he has the gift of evangelism. And one of these days, we're going to get him up here to do uh, some teaching to the congregation on witnessing. 
And why get somebody like me who doesn't have the gift of witnessing? I'll be the first one to to tell you that. I just love driving somewhere with this guy. He never met a gas station attendant he didn't give the gospel to. And you're around somebody who has the gift of evangelism. They're just stopping giving the gospel to everybody. And it's incredible to watch. And they're effective at it. And I could stop and give the gospel to the same number of people. And it's like an exercise in frustration almost. You, you, you just don't seem like you're effective, but you watch somebody with the gift of evangelism. And you see the same thing with somebody who has the gift of teaching. You can see people who don't have the gift of teaching who teach, and they do a good job, and that's necessary and important, and especially in a small congregation as we have, there are those of you who may not be gifted in the area of teaching, yet we need prep school teachers. And some of you know that you don't have the gift of teaching, and yet you're teaching in prep school, and you're doing a great job. But you then see somebody who has the gift of teaching, and you just marvel at the difference. So just because you're not gifted in an area doesn't mean you don't have that responsibility in that area. But the gifted pastor teacher, the gifted evangelist are given to the church to train the uh, believer who doesn't have those gifts to function effectively in those areas. So Ephesians 4.12 emphasizes the importance of training, and the training always comes first. You don't get out there and do, 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 like you have in most churches. First you get trained, and the training has to do with point number eight. Learning Bible doctrine must precede Christian service for the service to have maximum effectiveness. You have to learn the Word. You have to grow it by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a matter of getting out there and doing a bunch of activity. And that's why we emphasize around here that before you are uh, given the opportunity to teach in prep school or to do anything else, you need to demonstrate a certain level of faithfulness and attendance at Bible class for at least a couple of years. Because I don't want somebody coming in here who's been at some other church and thinks they know a lot about the Bible and wanting to get involved in Sunday school teaching or some other kind of uh, of ministry until they understand what this congregation is all about, what our philosophy of ministry is all about, and the doctrine that we teach here. And you'll see that time and again, and I've seen that about about four instances stand out in my mind since I've been here, where you have people come in the back door and they get excited because they're being taught something, and they're here for about maybe five months or six months, and then you don't see them anymore. Because what they want, they, they like the teaching at first, but what they really want is all the entertainment and all the fluff that goes along with other churches, and they don't realize that, that, that they're mutually exclusive concepts. You can't ever merge all the entertainment and fluff at, that you get in a lot of churches with a strong teaching ministry. It doesn't work. It never has worked. There's all kinds of young seminary students who come up with idealism, and they say, well, I'm going to have a strong teaching ministry, but I'm going to add in a lot of the contemporary praise and worship kind of thing, and and we're going to merge these things together so that we can appeal to people. Well, what happens is this, that praise and worship service attracts a certain kind of mentality. It doesn't attract people who want to learn the Word, who understand the seriousness of Christian life. And so you bring them in, you attract them with the praise and worship, and then you try to switch them over to uh, 
hardcore teaching of the Word of God. never works. It's a bait-and-switch technique, and it always falls apart. So you have to emphasize your strengths, and that's what we do at Preston City Bible Church. We emphasize our strengths. We've had I've, I've been I've been amazed because when, as I said, when I first came here five and a half years ago, that this is a small church in a rural area. It's never been very large, and I didn't expect one new person to walk in the back door. And yet, we've had a number of people that have come, and the church has grown over the uh, last four or five years. But that is. was exclusively due to the grace of God, but I think one factor in that is just emphasizing what we're here for, and that is to teach the Word. And we emphasize our strength here, and that is the teaching of the Word and content of the Word, and we hope that we have a reputation that if people want to learn the Bible, that they go to Preston City Bible Church. If they want something else, they go somewhere else, and we encourage them to go somewhere else. Because they'll just be a distraction to what we're doing here at Preston City Bible Church. So point number eight, learning Bible doctrine must be, must precede Christian service for that service to have maximum effectiveness. Then, uh, point number nine develops that point, point number eight a little more. Spiritual momentum and motivation must precede Christian service. See, what is more important than serving in some sort of capacity is learning the Word of God and the spiritual dynamics that uh, uh, undergird the spiritual life rather than getting out there and doing something. So I would rather have people come here and sit down for two or three years and just take in the Word, and then what happens is the result of that spiritual growth manifests itself in a solid, stable ministry of spiritual service in the congregation, whatever that may be, whether it's whether it's taking care of the building or whether it's taking care of the grounds or working and teaching in prep school or, or in training aids or whatever it might be, it comes from a position of strength and spiritual growth. And it's a longer process that way. And see, we live in a fast food culture that wants everything instantaneously. And so we want people to come in the back door, and we want them involved in the church in a matter of uh, weeks or months. And people come in the back door thinking that they ought to get involved in doing something in a matter of weeks or months. And that's something that is sort of culturally ingrained in people. But I prefer to go for the long, slow, quality route, and that is to have people just sit and learn the Word of God for two, three, four years, and then let the Spirit of God and the Word of God, as it's produced maturity in the believer, uh, motivate them internally to spiritual service. And not when it's done from some sort of external guilt, or uh, manipulation, it's nothing more than wood, hay, and straw. You can build a big church that way. And when I was ordained, the, the uh, pastor who ordained me had been a had been a uh, in the banking industry. He had been a financial on the financial team for Campus Crusade for Christ, and he had been involved in raising tremendous sums of money for Campus Crusade when he was younger, before he went to seminary. And he told me, he said, Robbie. When you get out there in the world, you can realize that anybody who has, who's a good salesman can raise enormous amounts of money and attract thousands of people. 
But that doesn't mean God has anything to do with it. And you can look around, you can turn on the television and watch these televangelists, and you can see people who have huge crowds and large bank accounts, and their doctrine is not biblical. See, you don't, you, you, anybody can do that in the strength of the flesh. It doesn't mean because you have large numbers, large crowds, and lots of money that God is blessing it. It just means that you have a lot of talent in the flesh, but it's nothing more than wood, hay, and straw. And it's people who want to get out there and emphasize the overt. They're emphasizing that which is seen by everybody, and then that external reality becomes the criteria for evaluating their ministry. It's more important to deal with the unseen. It takes a much longer time. It's much less observable. But what you have is real ministry, genuine Christian service, and true maturity taking place in a local church And it's because it's all done on the basis of the filling of the Spirit and the Word of God, and all human manipulation is excluded. And that leads to point number 10. Therefore, Christian service is the result of spiritual momentum and spiritual growth, but never the means of momentum or growth. It is the result of spiritual momentum and growth, but never the means of momentum and growth. Now, there are four categories of Christian service. Four categories of Christian service. First of all, there's Christian service related to your spiritual gift. And that's what we're studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So that's all I'm going to say about that in point number one. Then there's Christian service, second category, Christian service related to your royal priesthood. For example, intercessory prayer. That's related to your uh, being a royal priest in the royal family of God. The third category of Christian service is related to your royal ambassadorship, and this has to do with evangelism, with witnessing to others. And then fourth, you have Christian service related to your invisible impact as a believer. The very fact that you are in Bible class growing to spiritual maturity is having an impact in the angelic conflict, and it's having an impact of blessing by association on those around you and on this nation. So Christian service is related to invisible impact as a believer. Four areas of of Christian service, one related to your spiritual gift, two related to your royal priesthood, three related to your royal ambassadorship, and four related to invisible impact. Now, we have to recognize that Christian service related to your spiritual gift is based on something that is given to you at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. You don't know what it is at that point. You may never specifically identify your spiritual gift But that is not necessary. Your spiritual gift will become effective, and you will begin to operate in it as you grow and mature as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just, uh, by analogy, it's the same as what happens in in, in regular life. As you're born, you have certain innate talents and abilities. And as you grow and mature, you're gravitated because of your likes and dislikes and because of what you are capable of doing, what you're not capable of doing. You you gravitate to certain uh, fields of endeavor. 
And the more you grow and learn and develop, the more your ability in those areas uh, develops and you become more and more effective in those areas. Now, some folks are just lazy and they're inept and they never develop their talents because they don't have the discipline. They don't have the desire to stick with what's necessary to have it develop. And that happens in the spiritual life. You have a tremendous number of lazy believers who are not positive to doctrine, and they just want to sit around and uh, let other people take care of them and other people take care of their responsibilities, and they're a drain on the body of Christ, and that's one of the first things you need if you're going to be a spiritual vampire. So you know the doctrine of spirit being a spiritual vampire, that you exist simply to feed off of other believers, and you get your nourishment and sustenance from other people other believers and there's always folks like that in a congregation and they're always trying to get approbation from other people and sympathy from other people and they just became a real drain and drag and after they're around for a few weeks what you find is that everybody avoids them like the plague second category of a of a vampire christian is they never see that the word of god applies to them you know, the vampire can't see the reflection in the mirror, so a spiritual vampire can't see the reflection, their reflection in the mirror of the Word of God. And then the third category of a spiritual vampire is that they walk in darkness and they can't walk in the light. And that's true of so many. They, they just never get the point that they're supposed to apply the Word and change the way they think. And they're so self-absorbed and so full of themselves in term, and so full of a pity party for whatever's gone on in their life that they never can seem to focus on the grace of God. Now, Christian service is related to spiritual gifts, and we have a list of spiritual gifts given to us starting in verse 8 of chapter 12. Verse 8 reads, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. And then in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now let's look at this list. Now there's some interpretive problems in getting into this list starting in verse 8. And I want to read... While you look at the text, I want to read to you from a modern translation called The Message. Now, this is the version that I just love to hate because it is so poor. And it's more it's a paraphrase more than it's a translation. And the author's theology comes through in horrible ways. And you'll see it. This is a great example of this, as we'll see. This is how he handles this section, verses 8 through 10. He says, The variety is wonderful. Wise counsel. That's his interpretation of word of wisdom. Clear understanding. That's his interpretation of word of knowledge. Simple trust. That's his definition of faith. That's com- These three are completely wrong. I mean, he, this guy is ignorant of the Bible. Healing the sick, miraculous acts, you got that right. Proclamation, that's how he defines prophecy. And that completely, see, when you get the wrong definition of these gifts, then you're, you're going to completely distort many, uh, areas related to tongues and prophecy and, and uh, the whole Pentecostal charismatic issue. Uh, distinguishing between spirits, you got that right. Tongues and interpretation of tongues. But on three of these, or four of these, 
having to do with the word or message of wisdom, the word or message of knowledge, uh, faith, and prophecy, he's completely out of line. But he's not alone. I took the time to consult a number of commentaries this last week on these these various gifts, and there's more uh, darkness related to understanding these concepts than there is light. Very few people understand what these gifts are or what, how they operated, and that's because they were temporary gifts that disappeared in the early church. So we really don't know what they were or how they operated because there's nobody around to tell us how they operated, and they're only mentioned in this passage. And they're just, all we have is the name of the gift, and we don't have anything in the Scripture for, for at least three of these that really illustrate what, how these gifts operated or what they were all about. Now, there's a couple of things that we ought to note as we look at the exegesis of this passage before we get into the details. And that is that there is an interplay between two Greek words, and it's this interplay that divides this list of gifts into three, uh, into three groupings. Three groupings. And the two Greek words are up on the overhead, alas and heteros. Alas and heteros. And the word alas in the Greek has the idea of another of the same kind, another of the same kind. So it's two things that are very similar. This is where we get our English word alloy. Uh, metal alloy, different metals that are joined together and they can merge together. On the other hand, you have the word heteros, which has the idea of another of a different kind. This is where we get the uh, word for heterosexual. It's a difference of a, uh, it's another of a different kind where you have two different things. Now, as you go through this passage in the Greek, what you'll find is that at the beginning of verse 8, we have these uh, two gifts grouped together, in, uh, grouped together uh, under the concept of Allah. So they're uh, another of the same kind. And then when you go to verse 9, where we read, and to another faith, and to another faith by the same spirit, there is a shift there to uh, heteros. So to another there is heteros, and then by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings, and that's alas. And then in verse 10, to another the working of miracles, and that is alas. And to another discerning of spirits, and that's alas. And to another different kinds of tongues, and that's heteros. So what you see here is that You'll have a grouping of, of two, and then and they're alas. And then when you change to a new category, the first another is going to be heteros, indicating another of a different kind. And then everything, the, the three or four gifts in that same kind are, 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 are use the word alas. And then when you shift to another kind, the first another is going to be heteros. Now we're going to another of a different kind. And so when you come to... Uh, verse 8, you have, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Those are grouped together. And then in verse 9, to another, that's heteros. We're changing categories now. Faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, 
Those are all the, the same category. And then when you come to another different kinds of tongues, Paul shifts, uses the word heteros, indicating, okay, we're going to our third category now, uh, tongues and interpretation of tongues. So you have a, in terms of grammar and vocabulary, you have a gr- three groups of gifts here. Three groups of gifts, and it's not readily apparent what they have in common, but it's clear from the grammar that there is a grouping here. So the first group has two in it, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Now, when we look at that translation of of word, it's the Greek word logos, which technically means word, but it has to do with with communication, so it should be translated a message. It's not a single word. It is a message, so it should be translated, for to one is given a message related to wisdom through the Spirit, and to another, the word or the message of knowledge through or the message related to knowledge through the same spirit. And Paul uses three different prepositions in talking about through they're all translated through the spirit, and the emphasis through those three different prepositions, dia, kata, and in, is to emphasize that in every way you can imagine when you're thinking about this, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in relationship to these gifts, uh, the Holy Spirit is involved. It's by means of the Holy Spirit, it is through the Holy Spirit, and it's according to the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis here is on the uh, Holy Spirit and His role in these gifts. Now when we look at these first two gifts, I must confess that there's tremendous confusion on these gifts, and I cannot speak, and I don't think anyone can speak with certainty on just exactly what these gifts were and how they operated. I can tell you one thing, though. It's not the absurdity that you find in charismatic operations, where the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is where somebody stands up and this is a personal insight into something that's going to happen in somebody else's life. We don't have any example like that in the Scripture. Now, let me give you, I'm going to read a couple of things from some commentaries just to show you the level of confusion that's out there on these gifts. So whenever, and the reason I'm doing this is that if you hear any pastor stand up and give a dogmatic definition of these gifts, then you ought to be a little bit suspicious because we just don't have the information. This is the only time in Scripture that these gifts are mentioned. And we never have them mentioned in reference to any operation. There's no illustration of these gifts in Acts or in any of the uh, epistles. Now, the first gift mentioned here is the message of wisdom. And the College Press NIV commentary says that this is a wisdom teaching based on Old Testament wisdom precepts. Or maybe it's a message more focused on Christ. So they're getting close on that second part, because at least they're going to Paul's use of the term wisdom in the epistle to the Corinthians, where in 1 Corinthians 1.30 he writes that Jesus Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. So I think that in terms of how Paul uses wisdom in Corinthians, it does focus on the message related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in their definition, they're not clear and they think that maybe it has to do with Old Testament wisdom precepts. But see, that's not a revelatory gift. 
Now, what we have to understand here, before I go any further, is that in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8, 9, and 10, we have the emphasis on the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, that they're temporary gifts and they'll pass away. And that passage teaches us that whatever else we can say about the second gift here, the message of knowledge, it is a revelatory gift. It has to do with special revelation. Therefore, word of wisdom has to do with special revelation. So it's not just articulating something about the Old Testament. It's new revelation. So those guys are out of line. Charles Hodge, a 19th century theologian, wrote that it's simply the gift of speaking or communicating wisdom. That doesn't say anything. John MacArthur, who's well known for his uh, as a pastor out in Southern California, says that it, it's based on the Old Testament concept of wisdom, which has to do with skill in living. So his conclusion is that it is applying truths discovered or the ability to make skillful and practical application of the truth to life situations. But once again, that's not a revelatory definition. It doesn't have to do with special revelation. But he does imp- try to use the text and say that wisdom in the Bible, tends to be application of doctrine. In the complete opposite arena, Dallas Seminary's Bible Knowledge Commentary says that wisdom is insight into doctrinal truth. Those are See, see wisdom and knowledge. You have, on the one hand, one says that wisdom is skillful application, knowledge is information, and then they reverse themselves. And when you get to the word of knowledge, the Bible knowledge commentary says that knowledge has to do with application, and MacArthur says knowledge has to do with information. So you see, you get everything, whoever you go to, they have something, and they're mutually exclusive, they have different definitions, and in terms of a, of a summary or just making my own stab at this, it has to do with a message, it has to do with something to do with special revelation. Third, I think we have to say that since Paul uses wisdom in this epistle to relate to the the work of Christ, I think it has to do with special revelation that that relates to application of doctrine from the person and work of Jesus Christ. The the word of knowledge has to do with special revelation in terms of information about the spiritual life in the church age. What we have to realize is at this early stage in the church, they didn't have any of the mystery doctrine that Paul had revealed. And so during this time, uh, they, they don't have a completed canon of Scripture. Not even Paul or Peter has the whole panorama. They don't have the whole picture. It's not until the New Testament canon is complete that anyone has the whole picture and that you have a sufficient revelation. They didn't have a sufficient revelation from God until Revelation, the book of Revelation, was completed and the canon was completed. Therefore, it was necessary for God to give special revelation to different people at different times in different congregations related to specific issues that they were dealing with because they didn't have a completed canon yet. Once the canon was completed and you had a sufficient revelation, then these gifts would pass off the scene, and that's what we'll learn when we get into 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 to 13. 
Well, we've looked at the first grouping this morning, and before we get into the next grouping, we have to spend a lot of time trying to understand the gift of prophecy and just what that was. There's a lot of confusion on that, so since that's such a large topic, we'll wait until next time before we get into the gift of prophecy with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged in the area of spiritual service and our responsibilities and obligations to grow and mature as a believer, to let the Holy Spirit uh, challenge us and to produce a a mature and qualitative uh, life of spiritual service, that we recognize that we're all in full-time Christian service. We all have responsibilities in relationship to the body of Christ, and to become effective, we must grow and mature as believers. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. To know that you have eternal life, all you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that man's problem is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, all that you have to do to receive that gift is to simply believe, to accept that gift for yourself, not to rely on anything else, but to exclusively depend upon Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. Father, we thank you for what we have studied and learned this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with it, that we might not forget these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.